Now, as anybody who's had small children know, that they're just, it's a constant thing. They're always wanting juice and snacks, and you're always feeding them, and they're running around, and you're just, when you're raising small kids, you just, you get kind of run ragged sometimes, and you just begin to get desperate. You're like, I don't want to make another meal for, the, for these people. So, you know, you get desperate and you go to McDonald's, you go to Chick-fil-A, you go to fast food because, you know, the, the kitchen's a mess and desperate times calls for desperate measures. So I do that. I take them to fast food. And when I, I'll ask them, I make this mistake, I ask them every single time, I'll ask Kenny and Abigail, I'll say, Kenny, you know, what do you want from this restaurant or this fast food restaurant? And he will always say a hamburger. I'll give him the option, chicken nuggets. Every single time he's going down the hamburger route and Abigail's going down the chicken nuggets route. This is going somewhere, trust me, if you weren't unclear. And what I've noticed is that Kenny always thinks he wants something different than chicken nuggets. But whenever he sees my daughter eating the chicken nuggets, he immediately doesn't want his burger anymore. He wants exactly what she wants. He's a very jealous, covetous little guy. <laughs> loves a Hulk, but you know, he's, he's just, he's always jealous of whatever she's having. So now what I have to do is whenever I get them a happy meal, I order both chicken nuggets and I, and, uh, and I get a burger on the side because I have to ask him what he wants. If I don't ask him what he wants, he gets mad about that too. So I have to ask him what he wants. And so I'll order, yeah, get a, get two orders of nuggets and then I'll get the burger. And then what will happen is he'll see Abigail eating her nuggets and he's like I want some of that and then I have to give him the nuggets and then I eat the burger so that's that's how it goes as a parent you know to prevent a complete meltdown if this sounds like hostage negotiations let me tell you it's pretty close to that Blame the game. <laughs> that's right <laughs> but I didn't teach my son to be this way at all he is like this my daughter's not perfect either she sometimes will lie to get out of trouble it's very it's something she does. Kids do it. And I mean, you know, I'm a pastor. I'm a pretty good guy. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not. I'm, I'm a sinner like everybody else. But, you know, I mean, I, I'm not impulsively like lying around my wife and children. I don't do it. Right? That's not something I really do. But and I never taught my daughter to lie. And I thought about that. She doesn't see me lie or be a lying kind of person. I never taught her that. But yet she lies to get out of trouble. I didn't teach her that and started early, two or three. I hope my kids don't go back and say sermons because I might get into trouble later on. But we know that children lie. You don't have to teach them to lie. We all know that, that children, you don't, you don't have to teach them to be bad. They're automatically bad. What you have to do is you have to teach your children common sense and how to be good, how to do the right thing. Like, they're not naturally patient. They're not naturally, like, you know, they're naturally selfish. Is, I mean, you just listen to kids, little kids. I want juice. I want another snack. I want to watch that show. It's like a demand festival. I mean, that's how it is. And so they're, they're impatient. They're self-absorbed. That's how kids are. And what I love about the Bible is that it explains this reality perfectly by saying human beings are born naturally towards evil, towards doing the bad. We have to teach people to be good. They're not automatically good. They're naturally attracted to sin, and they are born in sin. And, you know, pe people are different. Some people are attracted to some sins, and others are not attracted to those sins. I've met people who have really strong desires towards anger. They get angry. They, they fly off the handle very easily. Others, not so much. I've had seen people that are very, very, very jealous. But I've seen others that are just not naturally as jealous. They may struggle with something else. Some people struggle 
in churches, we don't, maybe we don't see it like, you know, when someone's uh, on drugs or they're, they're into alcoholism heavily, we can see their disheveled appearance. But people in churches, they can, they, people will struggle with gossip. They'll have a tendency to gossip. And, you know, you won't see that on their outward appearance. They may look nice, but they're gossiping. And so they have a tendency to gossip. I bet people who just can't stand gossipers, people who gossip and backstab and, you know, spread a tale and everything. I've met people who are strongly attracted to getting drunk. One sip and they're done. And others can't stand the taste of alcohol or don't even like the effects once they go past one alcoholic beverage. Here's my point. Everybody struggles with something different, with different sins. Everyone is born broken in different ways. That's the one thing we all share in common is we're all born broken. But the sin that you might be attracted to is not necessarily what I'm attracted to. So no one has this like excuse for being like, oh, well, I'm better than those people. I'm so self-righteous. Everybody has struggles and we all have attractions to certain types of evil. And the Bible explains this well. And that's why I love the Bible tells the truth. And but if the Bible is told the truth that, hey, you know, we're all sinful, we're born evil, that kind of thing. If it just gave the truth and just left us there, it'd be kind of like a failure pile and a sadness, well, kind of sad and depressing. But you see, the Bible doesn't just leave us in that truth. It gives us also another truth, a hope from that, not just leaving us there. And it, that's why the Bible is the most read book in all of human history, because it tells the truth and gives it in love, gives the hope on the other side of it, the, the solution to a problem. It doesn't just give the problem, but it gives a solution in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And some people have said that, you know, the teaching that we're born in sin, that that's kind of a silly unreasonable doctrine what we'll see in our verse by verse study here of Romans is that it does make perfect sense when we think about it and so let's start reading here Romans 5 12 we go into the 15th verse but we'll start here in verse 12 therefore just as sin came into the world through one man that one man here being Adam universally agreed upon that's Adam and death through sin so death spread to all men because all sin. So Paul is saying here, hey, he's connecting death and sin like this. They're together like this. They're, they're friends. Death and sin are connected. All people die because they sin. As the old expression go, the only thing certain in life is death and taxes. It's actually coming up. I'm realizing we're in April now. Sorry to remind you <laughs> of that reality. You're like, death, not so bad. Taxes, <laughs> But yeah, as we've discussed, every human being does die. Embryos, babies, old people, young people, everybody dies. We're subject to death. And even those who are cognitively unable to sin or even know how to sin die. And that's because they, though they may lack the ability to sin, they have somebody else's sin on them. And that would be the sin of Adam, the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And that sin is, is given to them. And this is a teaching of the church from the very, very beginning. And this is called original sin. It has been believed for thousands of years. And this means that not only human beings are inclined towards sin and evil, but they're also given the sin of Adam. They have the sin of Adam on them in some sense. Specifically, what I mean by that is they're held responsible for Adam's sin, the sin where he fell in the garden and disobeying God and eating of the forbidden fruit, as the story goes in Genesis. 
Now, the Bible is teaching this because this verse indicates that this one sin from this one man is the reason, it's the explanation as to why people die. They haven't sinned personally like infants or those who are severely mentally handicapped. Paul is providing an explanation of all human death here. And what's very interesting is in Greek here that all sin is referring to the original sin because it's used in the aorist tense as this one past definitive act. This act. It's not continuous sinning. I like the way how Scottish New Testament scholar William Barclay puts it. He says, if we are given, give to the aorist tense its full value and in agreement with, with this, we must do so. The precise meaning will be that sin and death entered into the world because all men were guilty of one act of sin. So it's this one definitive act that's connected to Adam, that fall in the garden. And so he is explaining this, that we all sinned in Adam in the covenant of Adam, as we'll look at more. And this becomes even more straightforward, more obvious as you kind of dig through the text and read God's word here. And you look at Romans 5.18, just one example, because we're going to be going over Romans 5 again, and you're going to see just how this gets even clearer and clearer as we work through the book of Romans. Romans 5.18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so that one ass sin act of Adam, it brought about condemnation for everybody. Condemnation. So one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men, that referring to Jesus. So th this condemnation is given to us, credited to our account through the sin of Adam, as Romans 5 is saying here. So in the meantime, let's kind of get more into this, looking at Romans 5.13, says, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. We'll look at what that law refers to. But sin is not counted where there is no law. And what Paul means here by law is a written law or a law directly communicated by the mouth of God. There was no written code or any like works covenant in between Adam and in between Moses. And yet people still died. They still, because of that one sin. But that doesn't mean people were like sinless. Like, you know, in between Adam and Moses, they're only getting you know, Adam's sin. No, no, that doesn't mean that. Because Romans 2 says, Paul says in Romans 2, the law of God is written on our heart. In our hearts inherently, without even reading anything, we know what's right and wrong. We know what's immoral and moral. And so we know what's, what's sinful inherently, given that we are made in God's image. We have a conscience. The point here that Paul is driving at is the sin of, say, sinning against what you know in your conscience is different than a written objective law covenant given to you that you're saying, you're, this is a law, you've got to keep this, it's written down or communicated directly. And when you go against that, that's, that sin is counted way worse, much worse. We all know it's wrong to lie, for example. Like, we, we inherently know what's right or wrong. But if God, like, directly communicates, I don't know, in your room, and I, don't lie, and you lie, it's, like, way worse. It's obviously much worse. And so God counts the types of sin of direct disobedience against the law covenant, law code written on, it's much different than just being written on your heart. It, analogy I thought of, and uh, there's so many kids' analogies, I'm sorry, as you can tell, I'm struggling as a parent. <laughs> but, you know, like, and, you know, the kids, like, they always go for so many sweets. That's why we stopped having candy here. We used to have candy. And um, my wife had the good sense to say, why are you doing that? You know, it's a bad idea. But kids, they go for more and more candy. And, you know, parents tell them repeatedly, you know, not to, the sugar is bad and everything. 
But they know it's bad to have lots of sweets. But if they're just eating three cookies on by themselves, they may not get in as much trouble. But if they're like, if I'm right in front of them and there's like one more cookie and they've had three cookies and I say, Abigail, don't eat that cookie. And she looks at me like in my face and directly takes that cookie and eats it. You better believe she's getting in a lot more trouble than her just like, oh, here, look, there's, uh, there's three cookies, you know, I'm just eating it. No, she, she's going to get a lot more trouble if I'm looking straight at her right in her face and she's eating that cookie. And I'm, uh, you know, there's because she's like right to my face. And that's the kind of thing that Adam did to God in the garden. God's like, don't eat this tree. And Adam's like, okay, let's do it, you know. And so it's way worse. It's a law covenant and you're going to against the Almighty. You're sinning straight against His face. And so the sin that people had in between Adam and Moses was not like that. It was much more different uh, because it was just their conscience. It was not a direct defiance like people under Moses, people under Adam or uh, Adam himself. And so you, you see this understanding is confirmed all the more in verse 14 when it says, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. So there were still people sinning, still people dying. Even over those sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. So it's not, it's not as bad as Adam's transgression, not as bad as, you know, sinning against God when he's giving you a commandment, who was a type of the one who is to come. So people are still disobeying, still sinning in this time, not at the same level as Adam did. Now, this passage can throw people off when it says that Adam is a type of Christ. The, it says a type of the one who is to come. It's referring to Jesus there. You're like, wow, that's kind of weird. Like, how is Adam a type of Christ? Well, what does type mean? It means an example, a pattern, a model of, an outline of. So this guy, Adam, who's like plunged the entire human race into sin and misery. Uh, how is that guy? A pattern or a model of Jesus. How does that point to Jesus? Well, obviously there's a similarities, but there's Paul is trying to cap, capture here the similarities between the two. He's trying to draw a connection here and how, he, how Adam points to Christ. And the way in which Adam and Christ are similar is that they both represent the human race. They're both federal representatives. Federal means covenant. You're like, using ancient language here like who says covenant anymore no one says that word like it's like an ancient old man word or something it's very you know many leather bound books kind of word and so covenant means agreement now if you want to know a more common way covenant is used hey here we go a marriage covenant it's a marriage covenant right and that's a that's basically an oath between uh you know two parties right to be married all your life you know all the vows that you do you know the thing right um so, yeah, that's, that's what a covenant is. It's an agreement between two or more parties, and it has a kind of oath-binding element to it. And it's very, you know, it's very intense when people devote their whole lives to somebody, you know, an oath like that. It, we, we say it with great weight. And so a covenant has this kind of, it's like an agreement with weightiness on top. And so in this case, Adam and Christ had this agreement with the Father, uh, God the Father, to keep the commandments of God. And so this is like a, a, a workspace covenant that Adam was in and that Christ was in. And so I'll just give you two passages. I'm not just like, you know, throwing out stuff here. This is actually rooted and grounded in God's word. But just an example of Adam's covenant that he was in. He was in a covenant with God in the garden. You say, well, I read Genesis, Nate. It doesn't say covenant in there. Well, just look at Hosea 6, 7 here. But like Adam, they transgress a covenant. So those in the Mosaic covenant under Moses, they transgress a covenant like Adam because Adam transgressed a covenant. We're all experiencing sin and death and pain. 
There they dealt faithlessly with me. God's talking. He's saying they're faithless like Adam was faithless to that covenant in the garden. So they're covenant breakers just like Adam. And so in this sense, Adam is a, a covenant head or federal representative of the human race. And the same thing is true of Jesus. Jesus had a covenant, an agreement with the Father that he would work and merit and serve and all those things that he would save us by dying for our sins and meriting and earning eternal life for us. And so you see this in Luke 22 through 29. And I have to go into the Greek a little bit. The Bible uh, is written in Hebrew and Greek. And Koine Greek is the original language it was written in. We can translate it today. We know what it means. And so I'm going to kind of tell you the Greek behind this to communicate like that a covenant's being stressed here. Luke twenty two twenty nine, And I assign to you as the Father assigned to me a kingdom. Now, the English doesn't capture the, the, the dynamic of the Greek here more fully as I'd like it to. But the word for assign, every time it's used in, say, ESV or NIV translation, assign in Greek means covenanted. So, I covenanted to you as my Father covenanted to me a kingdom. And so Jesus is saying here, I'm giving you this new covenant right here, you know, disciples, just like my father has made a covenant with me to get this kingdom of God, to bring salvation. So there is an oath-like agreement between Jesus and the father that he would represent sinners. He would represent us on our behalf and he would be perfectly righteous and earning and meriting for us salvation so he could save us. And so in that way, Adam is a type of Christ. It points to Christ. Both Adam and Christ represent the world. And what they would do to, would determine the fate of us all. They are our federal represent, uh, representative in that sense. Their actions impact us today. There's death and sin. Anybody can look around can see that. And there's pain and suffering. And so they've brought that about, and, or uh, brought, not Christ, not they. Adam has brought that about uh, by how he's acted. Now, I want to say this because I want to, you know, address the elephant in the room, so to speak. But we as Westerners, we don't like that. We really don't like this idea of federal representation. I've heard things from people talking to people about this. Say, this is so unfair. Nate. I didn't do it. Why am I being held responsible for another guy's actions? And this is a very common reaction in this, like this very Western individualistic view of the West here. We're hot, we, you, we don't realize it, but we are so, as a culture, so highly individualistic in how we think. We're not corporate or communal at all. It's a, this why church can be such a challenge for, for people in the West, because we're just not communal. And it's shocking, uh, it's, it's not shocking that, you know, a major objections of original sin throughout the history of the church has really risen up in the 17th century, in the 18th century, in Western cultures. That's when everybody gets all upset about, oh, this, this teaching of original sin, this is, I, I really don't like this. How can we be held responsible for Adam's actions? You know, that, that Western individual, individualistic like way of thinking, it's really coming out. It's really coming out there. And, and so what they said back then is, yeah, how can, how can God hold you accountable for another person's actions, for another person's sins? That just seems wrong. 
You know, every man, a Westerner would say, every man's responsible for himself. And by ourselves, we can work hard, pull up our bootstraps, be successful, you know, or we could choose not to be whatever you want, you know. And so it doesn't depend on anybody else. It's all on your shoulders. It all depends on you. That's a very Western and American way of thinking. Every person is like on their little isolated autonomous island, not affecting anybody else. People are just these disconnected units. But, you know, um, one Westerner, John Donne, an English poet, had enough sense. He was a very enlightened Westerner, realized that that's just not true. He says, no man is an island. And I have a slide for this because I, I come up with quotes at the last minute and make it really hard for the people to improve a center. Um, I'm crazy like that. So John Donne says, no man is an, an island entirely of itself. Every man is a piece of a continent, a part of the main if a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less as well as for the promotionary were, as well as if the main or of thy friends or of thine own were. Any man's death diminishes me. So this is all connected here. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Now, For Whom the Bell Tolls is not just a great Metallica song, but it is a reference to when the bell would ring, a funeral bells would ring, someone had died in a town or an area. And Dunn's point here is that, yeah, death affects us all. We're not these disconnected units as we as Westerners think. It's all wrong. It doesn't reflect realities. When I receive horrible news about a family member or someone in this church or a friend, it affects me a lot. It hurts. It affects my, my, my life, my family, my job. We're all connected. We're all interconnected. And that's why we need each other at church. This is a connected unit where we need each other to support each other. And so this Western view is not really accurate at all. It doesn't reflect reality, and so it's not taught in Scripture. So we shouldn't be surprised by that. And what's interesting in people in other cultures and other time periods haven't had this issue with original sin like we as individualistic Westerners do. And the Bible, uh, in, when it's given these cultures, people realize, hey, we're all interconnected. We're a part of a family, a tribe, a town, a clan, all of these things. And this is especially true if you look at honor and shame cultures which the New Testament was written in, Bible was written in, and you see kind of like an example of honor and shame uh, culture. Have you guys seen the, the Disney movie Mulan? It, no one's seen Mulan? I was like, I've seen it twice. <laughs> I was like, I guess it's like not as popular as Aladdin or like uh, Lion King, but I mean, it's still Mulan. I mean, so anyways, in this movie, Mulan, a, a Disney character, she is trying to join the army because her ailing father, she's trying to protect family honor. She doesn't want to be revealed as a woman in the army and everything because she doesn't want to bring shame upon her family. She wants to bring honor. That's the whole purpose of the movie. It's about honor and fame, uh, honor and shame, not honor and fame. Don't confuse those two. Honor and shame dynamic in that culture is that, hey, if you do something, you bring shame or honor to the family. It's a communal way of thinking. It's an Eastern, more of an Eastern way of thinking. And this is especially true in countries that have a representative form of government. The people in the country vote for a representative and they, they represent them. So if your representative wants to go to war with another country, you're at war. Even if you don't like it, if you don't care, if your representative did it, then you're held responsible. You're, 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 a, you're a part of that is a better way of saying it. Like Chris Rock, who's in the news recently. Um, not going to comment on it. Don't worry. Uh, 
He says, when someone goes out on your first, when you go out with somebody on your, on your first date, they don't meet you. They meet your representative right there. So it's right about that. You know, people don't, they want to like put their best foot forward. And so, yeah, I mean, Western cultures have lawyers, power of attorney. When a person has this type of relationship with legal counsel, uh, they literally represent them in court and other places in life. And I, I get it. People, this doesn't satisfy people. Still, people say like, oh, come on. Like, this is not fair. This is not right. I still should be judged. I still should not be judged for what somebody else has done. It's just, I mean, I should have gotten my shot in that garden just like Adam. I didn't get a chance. And to make matters worse, people will say, I didn't choose Adam as my representative. Some people think, you know, okay, if, if you're going to give someone the power of attorney, if you're going to have someone represent you, you should have the free will and the power to pick your representative because you know what's best to suit you. You know what's going to best represent your thoughts, decisions, and feelings, and choices. And when people say this to me, I have to ask, you know, Oh, so you think you would have picked a, a better representative than God? Do you think that? I mean, it seems weird because the issue is, is that God in his nature is fundamentally fair and just. So when he picked Adam, he wasn't just picking some random guy. He picked somebody who would perfectly represent all of you. He would perfectly represent what you would choose in the garden. It is God who made and created Adam to be our perfect representative, to make him represent us in a form of a covenant with, with, with God and, and himself. God knew what he was doing when he put this together. So do you think you could have done better than Adam? Do you think you could have picked a better representative than the infinite, almighty, all-wise God of the universe who created everything? who will know in eternity, we won't even fully understand his knowledge. He's infinite. We're finite. There's a real distinction there. And so if you're so confident you would have chosen better than Adam, that sounds a little bit arrogant and self-righteous to think that you could pick better than an infinite, all-knowing God. And so it doesn't seem reasonable to say that you would pick better or have a more fair representative than God himself because there's nothing unfair and unjust about this. So Adam is our perfect representative in the garden. And so if you were in that garden... You would have eaten that forbidden fruit too. In fact, if, if me and Laura were in the garden, my wife's so pretty and I love her so much, I'd probably eat that fruit faster. I'd be like, give it right. I love eating. So I'd be like, yeah, you know, all right, you know. I would do it faster than Adam. So I have no objection to this. But joking aside, <laughs> people still have this fundamental objection. Why would God set up things this way? Why would God set up a plan this way? Have this, this whole federal representative stuff, this system going on here. Why, you know, why would he allow this? Well, let's just for the sake of argument, assume that there would be no federal representative system going on. Let's just assume there's no, God disallowed that from his plan. No federal representation, no, none of this going on. So that yet doesn't mean that Adam would not represent you. In fact, no one would. What that would mean is everything that you do would be on you, on you, on your shoulders, your salvation, your everything, your eternal destiny would be on your shoulders. And God's standard of righteousness, because he's perfect, it's not imperfection, it's perfect perpetual obedience to the law of God. None of us are that. We're not perfect. So if everything is on you and you must be perfect and be perfect before God, then you and I are in big, big trouble 
Big trouble. There's no hope at all. We would all be doomed if God did not allow federal representation. And praise God that he's allowed it. He's allowed covenant representation like, a, like the system to occur so God can save, uh, bring a second representative, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, to save us from all of our sins. He could represent us. So thank God, praise God, for, for this federal representation kind of system because God can save us through Jesus by his perfect life. He earned, merited and achieved everything for us. His perfect righteousness. He took the punishment as a representative in his, in his place, thereby earning salvation for us. So trust me, you don't want to get rid of federal representation. Because if Jesus does not represent you, then you have no hope. The one thing I would say that people usually object so much to Adam's representing you is they don't have that same type of objection towards Christ representing you. And people are just, I think, when you, whenever you hear something negative about yourself or something, you always want to object. But no one's like, oh, yeah, Jesus is going to represent me and save me. Sounds good to me. I'm, I'm liking that deal. Right. So, so I, it just seems like it's more of an emotional thing when people represent to it. They don't get as hot as bothered as much. Um, and by the way, Adam does represent you and he does do what you would do. Christ, on the other hand, let's just be honest. It's very good that Christ represents you because you would never act like Jesus. He, Adam accurately represents what you would do in the garden. Christ does not. He was perfect. And so Jesus does not accurately represent me because I sin every single day. But God, out of his grace, sends Jesus. God, this is a gracious act on the part of God to be my representative, to save me because he loves you. He, he loves me so much. So God set this all up. He knew he would fall. He set up this plan so that he could be just and righteous and work this whole system out so that he could save us, love us, and be there for us for all eternity, knowing him, having eternal life. I love how Paul puts it in the next verse, Romans 5.15. But the free gift is not like the trespass, not like the sin. For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more, not like equal, so the same. Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abound for many. Not a few. People, some people think God just creates a world and sends most people to hell. No, it says many here, lots of people. God so loved the world. And so this is abounding for many. So Adam's work can be undone, but not Christ. Much more. We can get rid of sin and death and hell. By knowing Jesus, and once you know Jesus is unbreakable, but Adam's work can be broken. The work of Jesus Christ can never be broken. I just love how he says much more here that the Son of God's representation is far more powerful than what Adam could ever do. And it's true that people say in Christian songs that his grace is greater than all of our sin. Here's the verse for that. Much more. It is greater than all of our sin, failure, and shame. The grace of Jesus Christ. It's abounding for you when you trust in Christ. So whenever you feel like your sin is just too much to hold on your shoulders, know that God loves you so much because of the work of Christ is much more than your failure and the failure of Adam. I'm thankful that Jesus was my substitute, my representative, because if he isn't, I'm in so much trouble. And so he is the representative that earns merits righteousness, dies for all of our sins, and that means, implication here, 
is that you never, ever have to strive, achieve, and work and be worthy for your salvation ever. Why is that? Because Jesus, your representative, has already done all that for you. That's why the gospel is such good news. And when you do that, you are filled with so much just thankfulness and love and joy. It just completely changes your life. Wants to have you fall. Your life just changed and you want to follow Jesus so much more. You don't have to worry about adding up or being good enough because Jesus already added up for you. You don't have to worry about getting into heaven and striving because Jesus has already earned And merited heaven for you. So you can entirely focus on loving God and loving people. You don't have to focus about whether or not you're good enough or whether or not you're adding up or anything like that. Because when Jesus said it is finished, he meant it. So you can focus, put your attention on genuine care of others and caring for them rather than worrying about saving Yourself, and this is hard for us because we're we, we want to we're individualistic Americans. We want to do it, you know. We we want to be good and get a reward for our goodness, our achievement. We want to contribute to something. We want to contribute and do something, you know. We don't we don't like you know people that don't contribute, you know, in this Western cultures. You know, and there's some reason behind that. But we, we want to contribute to something. We want to be a we want to do something. And it is a hard, it is a hard, tough pill to swallow. But the only thing that you've contributed to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. And, you know, people struggle with this. It's hard to wrap your head around this. And we have to remember at the end of the day that we are not God. We never will be. There is only one God, and He gets all the glory. And if we could contribute to our own salvation at all, not only would that not be good enough for God because God is perfect and we are not, but that would undermine His glory in completely and perfectly saving us and it all being back to Him and His glory. Salvation isn't about trying to make you look good. Salvation is all about glorifying Christ and making Him look good for you. Salvation is about Jesus. We make it about us more than about God and not about Jesus. Then we lose focus on the person and work of Jesus Christ. We, we lose focus on who is to be most glorified in our salvation. Not us. Not even a little bit. But all Jesus. So we have to fight against this Tendency to make salvation all about us and rather make it all about Jesus and his accomplishment, his work, not ours, his righteousness, not ours. And it's a struggle for us. I love the way I'll close with this. Benjamin Watson, who was a Christian football player. I don't know if anybody has ever heard of uh, Benjamin Watson. Okay, I'm, I'm really bad and good today. On my references. One person, just one so this guy is, you know, amazing guy. He has like a Christian podcast and everything with his wife. It's really cool. And so he played in the NFL. He was a 255-pounder tight end, and he was a rookie member of the Baltimore Ravens in 2004. Uh, during this, this season here, he played, he tore his ACL, and um, he did not play the rest of the season at all, none of the playoffs um, or the Super Bowl. So he's out of the Super Bowl, and the Ravens, 
ended up winning the Super Bowl. And so he gets this, you know, Super Bowl ring, this championship ring. He, he didn't want to wear it. He didn't contribute anything to it, right? So he's like, I don't know, why am I, it's not even my accomplishment. And he felt that that honor of getting a Super Bowl ring should only be reserved for players who actually participated in the game itself. This is what he said, according to Watson. So he's struggling with this idea of getting something he didn't earn. He wanted to earn it as American as he is. He says, when I had a struggle with perfectionism and grasping God's grace, that I realized accepting that ring is like how we have to accept his grace. We walk around as champions in Christ, as conquerors, not because of anything we did, but because of everything he did, Jesus. And so when you begin to understand, when that grace of God digs deep into your soul, you realize that everything you, you will ever need and ever have, you already have in Christ. You are forgiven. You are more than a champion, more than a conqueror. You are a child of the Most High King. You are forever loved and accepted because of what Jesus did. And that, for sinners like you and me, is truly good news. Let us pray.